This isn't new. This has been around forever. Nature, learning from nature, learning on the land. Nature is our teacher. And I think the thing about it is that there's something for everyone outside. You can literally learn about everything in and through nature. So I challenge you to look through your particular curriculum that you're teaching and find something that couldn't be done in and through nature. Nature is our original teacher. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers alike. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact students and teachers. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Shannon Kell, who will help us understand how we can take our teaching practice into the great outdoors and why we should, why it benefits the well-being of both students and ourselves. Today, we are coming to you from the ancestral and traditional territories of the Blackfoot, Sutina, and Eyehe Nakoda peoples, known to us as Treaty 7 Territory and the Métis Region 3. As we come into our conversation today, about place as curriculum and the land as teacher, we do want to note that these notions are not necessarily new, but they can actually be traced back to Indigenous epistemologies or ways of knowing. We come into these conversations with gratitude to the ancestors, elders, knowledge keepers, and land protectors, both past and present, and also into the future. And we also want to reflect on how we can take up more meaningful reciprocal relationships with the land and the first peoples of this land. So before we dive in, just a reminder that our podcast learning is mobile. As you are listening, we invite you to also tend to your wellness through physical activity like walking or stretching, or through an art-based activity like knitting or coloring. For me personally, podcasts are a great accompaniment to meal preparation. So maybe you want us to help you with your cooking, your vacuuming, whatever the case is, we really invite you to meaningfully attend to your wellness as you're listening in. So welcome to pod class, Dr. Shannon Kell. You are currently the interim chair of the Department of Education at Mount Royal University here in Calgary, and you normally work in the Department of Health and Physical Education. So we would love if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thanks, Jamie, and thanks for that great introduction. I'm currently the interim chair of education at Mount Royal, which is a new role for me, and so my learning curve is steep, and so I can relate on some level to everyone's learning curve in this new remote environment. It has afforded me some opportunities that I hadn't anticipated, like you know being able to step outside a lot more, which is great, and we'll probably get to that today. <laughs> My background is in secondary education in health and phys ed and English language arts. I used to teach in Regina, Saskatchewan for eight years and before coming to Calgary. And I really enjoyed those years and learned a ton, as I'm sure you can all relate to looking back on your first years of teaching. And I also taught sessionally at the University of Regina, which is really where my love for the outdoors and connecting that to my teaching practices took off. So um, well, I, we might get to more of that, and, that, and if we don't, that's fine. But I, I think it's important to remember that I didn't start off being really great at anything, and I've practiced and learned a ton, and I'm still learning a ton. And so I can appreciate where everybody might be starting from, and it's always unique to the person. So I wanted to start off with that, too. Right now, I am part of PHE Canada, which is our national organization for physical and health educators. I'm the board member for Alberta Northwest Territories, which is really cool. I get to connect with a lot of people. And I really love our HPAC organization here in Alberta. Some awesome folks, great support. So I encourage you, if you're wanting to reach out, those two organizations are Awesome. So I'll stop there, Jamie, and perhaps we can get into the conversation. I could talk about myself all day, but nobody wants to hear about that. Well, we we invite you to continue to share those pieces of yourself as we as we go through our conversation. We know that it's um, it's important. It, it even though we can't be in person, it's still important to develop those relationships with 
with people as mentors and and like you said with with partner organizations who can guide us in our practices because that that learning is core to being a teacher it, it never ends so speaking of learning you you completed your graduate studies in outdoor education and uh, a lot of your research and pedagogical interests are in the benefits of nature for learning but you talked briefly about how you started your career as a teacher and it's interesting is you know some of your your teaching expertise is in English language arts that's kind of where I started my teaching career in the humanities. Can you tell us about those experiences and how they have kind of come together or led you down this path to where you are now? Absolutely. I think actually this path starts much earlier than my formal education. My family was very much into camping and outdoors, like Mm -hmm. skiing, for example. So we got to experience a lot of the seasons and I never grew up afraid of any of the weather or seasons and I didn't really appreciate that until my adult years when I don't know maybe we become less resilient or more picky (laughs) but as a child I I experienced all those seasons doing really fun things and I was I now also recognize that that's a really privileged place to come from so as I moved into my formal education and then further into my post-secondary education I really started to think hard about that and And as a teacher, where are my students coming from? So as you mentioned, I did my uh, Bachelor of Education in um, English, Phys Ed and Health. And um, that was at the University of Regina. And I loved it there. And I I got my first teaching job in Regina. And it became home for me, even though I hadn't grown up there. And my teaching job was at Tom Collegiate in Regina, which was, again, new to me and had a really great breadth of programming and a huge wide variety of students from a wide variety of demographics which at the time I viewed as challenging but I look back now and I think that was the best opportunity to experience different perspectives and where are people coming from and um, again like I said I look back now and think of how privileged I was growing up so in my first years of teaching I really didn't have this great passion for taking my students outdoors. I'll be honest, it wasn't really even on my radar. I was looking to survive, as I think a lot of first-year teachers are. I had some great mentors, awesome support, and so I did begin to flourish. And um, I also started my master's degree, which is really the start of this more uh, relevant story of the outdoors, because I was te- after I finished my master's degree, I started teaching at the University of Regina as a contract faculty member in the areas of outdoor education. So my research in my master's was about outdoor education, and then I actually got to see it unfold in my classroom. That to me was the turning point, and I realized how powerful the outdoors could be in life, in teaching, in everything. Additionally, as I was going through my master's degree and my PhD later, I had very supportive administration, so that was very helpful. And I have to mention that because without that, I don't think I would be where I am. I started to think about my teaching both at the high school and in the post-secondary world about, okay, so what can I do to help my students? Like we can teach content, we can teach all, you know, the ABCs, but what is it that they as people need? And we're all people and what do we need as humans? And that's sort of how I started to approach things You know, when my grade nine English language arts class was reading, rather than sitting at desks reading, which isn't supernatural for anybody, you know, I don't sit at my house on a hard chair at a table and read. I go somewhere comfortable or I go outside. So I started doing that with my students going outside and it just totally changed things. And so um, that's just one small story. And I'm sure we'll get into some more stories, but it's just something really small that I started doing that was realistic and doable that I saw huge benefits from. And I think that if you are listening today and you're thinking about your own practice, one thing I want to emphasize is that you need to just start small. Like we don't need to be overwhelmed by trying to change the world in one day or changing our practices in one day, start small. And that's one of the big messages I'll try to reiterate throughout the chat today. So Shannon, I think, I think you, you touched on some really important pieces um, for these pre-service teachers, uh, which is, you know, that, that sometimes getting into your first teaching position, your focus is very much just about um, doing the best that you can with what you have. 
Um, and and also, I think you you speak to the importance of recognizing that growth is the measurement of, of your teaching practice, not like a, a particular final endpoint. Uh, I think that's something that that for me as a pre-service teacher was really challenging. Um, thinking about like, how do I get to this place in my practice where it feels good, it feels easy, and I feel like I have the tools. But as I learned, and as I continue to learn, that's not always the case, right? We, as teachers, our practice continues to grow and develop. And it's less about a final point of good practice and more about reflecting on those ways that we can continue to build and grow our practice. So thank you for touching on those pieces. And so with that, I think we're envisioning ourselves kind of taking our teaching practice outside. I think it's it's maybe helpful for us to start with what that relationship with the outside has meant to you in your in your own life. So uh, you talked a little bit about how that that importance became relevant to you in your practice and you saw different opportunities to incorporate that into your practice. Can you maybe share with us a memory from your childhood that stands out? I know you said that a lot of your love of the outdoors came from that place. Could you maybe yeah, share some some memories from your childhood as they stand out and the most profound experiences are that you've had with nature? Yeah, my memories of childhood, um, if you ask my parents, are probably a little bit skewed, <laughs> as they always are. One thing I always revisit now that I'm a parent too is my memory of playing outside in the park that was behind my house. It was a big, just a big green space. It didn't have a playground or anything. There was this huge, giant green space, and we would meet there with a whole bunch of other neighborhood kids. Really, unofficially, it's not like anyone put up a poster and said, "You know, 7 p.m. meet outside." Bring you your didn't football. text each other. You didn't. Yeah. <laughs> right. There, yeah. There wasn't such a thing. I'm yeah. dating myself now, but yes. And we just gravitated to that space, and we did what we wanted to in that space. There were no adults telling us what to do. There were no instructions. We had, sometimes we had equipment, sometimes we didn't. The trees weren't very big, but sometimes we found ourselves in those trees. Um, but a lot of the time, we ended up just playing sort of like a football game of some sort with made-up rules or, you know, it just really depended who was there because sometimes there were really young kids there and sometimes there were much older kids there and it was this great mix and we would just play whatever we felt like doing. And one of the best parts was that you could hear a parent or an older sibling call out to the group once it started to get dark, you know, time to come in. And that was sort of an unwritten rule too. Once it's dark, okay, everyone's going to go in. And I remember running around in bare feet on this grass often. It was really nice grass and coming in and realizing how cold my feet had actually been, but I'd never realized it until I came inside and they started tingling, you know, that feeling when you come in and they're kind of warming up and they were green on the bottom, you know, from all the running and what a great, memory I have of that of those times and I I look at my own children today who are still quite young they're three and five and I think how can I recreate that for my own children in my neighborhood and what are the barriers we see now right and I'm sure we'll get into that but what are the perceived or actual barriers around something like that something so simple as just going outside and playing without supervision and no timeline right so that's one of my best memories from childhood relating to the outdoors besides you know we went family camping as I mentioned we'd go on ski trips and all those things were amazing too I learned such great skills through those experiences and I can appreciate how much work that is now you know from my parents perspective but it seems to be that the unstructured things really stick with me and the things that we got to be in control of as children and we created so that has really stuck with me and that is something that I revisit a lot in my teaching and in my family life is the unstructured just outdoor time and how we are still learning even though it's not something that's being graded if you know what I'm talking about Jamie absolutely um, I think that that memory speaks to you know like the tactile sensory experiences of being in that place outdoors but then also you speak to uh, the the power of, of relationships and how they develop and how they respond to those situations, like the relationships of like the older kids taking the lead and creating rules as you go and and kind of exercising a particular kind of agency that for for young people in that kind of childhood environment, we didn't always have and then and then being able to kind of exercise that in the outdoor space 
is really powerful. Uh, and I, I think it speaks to the importance uh, of the outdoors, not just in a curricular level in the school context, but outside of that as well, uh, for relationships, for a sense of self, for fun, all of those pieces, I think that's really important. So thinking about how you experienced the great outdoors as a childhood and, and thinking about how uh, you've kind of created this pathway for yourself where you've built the outdoors and learning outdoors into your practice throughout your career. Um, I would love to hear more about what are the different ways that the outdoors has factored into your practice uh, in the past tense, kind of throughout your your early years as a teacher. Yeah, thanks. So I, as I mentioned, I was teaching in a high school and I, it really wasn't on my radar at first. It was about me surviving. And I wish actually that I, you know, could rewind to those times and take a little more time for myself outdoors, of course. So that's one thing that I've learned over the years is, you know, even when you feel like you're in that survival mode, it's so important to take a time out and it can be even more beneficial than taking a time out on social media, for example, is put that device away and go outside. It's so much more effective. And if I think if I'd have known that then I may have, had an easier time of my first years of teaching. I don't know that like I, that's a guess, but I would like to think that the research would back that up. So as I got teaching and got more comfortable with being outside as I did my masters and started into the research around the outdoors and the benefits and became more aware of the, the benefits for myself and my students, I started thinking more creatively of how I can make it work because teaching English language arts, People don't immediately think, oh, yeah, great connections with the outdoors, <laughs> right? And so, as I mentioned, we started simple. We started small, and we would go outside a lot to read. And then once the students were kind of comfortable with that, you know, that's a task they were familiar with. They knew what was expected. It wasn't totally out in left field. Well, pun intended, maybe we were out in the left field. <laughs> um, <laughs> but start with something familiar. And then... Then I would challenge them and say, you know, now we're going to go outside and instead we're going to write in our journals. And so that's a little more abstract, right? Whether you're inside or outside. So we started doing things that were a little bit more um, creative, let's say, and less restricted. And we would go outside and write. Or then I would say, okay, now we're actually going to go outside and first we're just going to listen for the first 10 minutes. You're not going to do anything. You're going to lay on the ground. And you're going to just listen. And we actually did do this in the winter time. I was very fortunate to have a group of students that had proper gear and they knew to bring the proper gear if I had asked them. So that piece is also important. But we would lay on the ground and just eyes closed, eyes open, whatever they wanted, just listen for 10 minutes. Then I would ask them to write about it. And, you know, for example, and I could go on and on, but you're getting the point that we started small and we scaffolded and we, we worked through it together comfortably because what you don't want is to push somebody so far that they're uncomfortable and they never want to do it again. That speaks to some of the research around the benefits of the outdoors. You won't find it beneficial if you're pushed so far that you're scared or afraid, right? Like if I forced you, Jamie, to go out somewhere where there's spiders and you're afraid of spiders, like that's not going to work for you. <laughs> then then we need to rethink what we're doing. So start small and scaffold and do something that is familiar first and then work your way together. Consider it a journey together to come up with ways and things you can do outside, even if it's not running around in phys ed class that you know people would traditionally think about. So when I was teaching English, that was one way that I incorporated the outdoors and I would see the difference in my students who would normally be really fidgety, not concentrating, to be honest, not even motivated in general to do anything. We'd go outside and it would kind of change things. They maybe found it refreshing, a change of scenery. But I know now in the research that it also is about giving them some choice, giving them some of the power and some of that trust, right? And to make those decisions. And when they saw that I trusted them to do what they were asked to do in this really huge environment, I think they felt really good about that. And we really connected on that relationship level moving forward. That was one of my big lessons was you can't give them too much freedom right away. You've, they've got to earn it, right? But if we work through that together, you'll, really, you'll, you'll get beyond where you ever imagined because you're giving them that empowerment and that trust. I think that speaks too to the importance of 
kind of breaking down some of that power relationship um, between teacher and students and and taking a more of a relational approach as opposed to like, uh, you know, I think as, as teachers, or at least in my pre-service teacher education, it was taken up very much as like classroom management, like you're the manager and there's this very much this power dynamic. Um, but what you're speaking to is is really that relationship and scaffolding of responsibility, um, the importance of agency and choice for students. Your success with that speaks to to how important that is. Absolutely. And, you know, it wasn't all like flowers and rainbows. I want people to know that like it's not always easy. And there was definitely some perseverance that came into play. But one of the things I tried to do was do some extracurricular related to the outdoors because in my growing up years, we had a really great outdoor education program in the high school I went to. I'm talking a whole bunch of privileged kids doing, you know, these overnight trips with awesome equipment, right? And as a child, I didn't know how lucky we were. So as a teacher, I thought, let's do something like that. That would be so great, for especially since a lot of the students who I was teaching may not have ever had that opportunity before. But I learned very quickly that my expectations And what I thought would be valuable were way off the mark. What the students really just needed was, again, someone who would go along with them for the ride, provide some opportunity for them, and then they would flourish. And you know what we ended up doing, Jamie, was instead of, you know, a backcountry camping trip, which is what I had initially envisioned, we camped in the schoolyard. And some of the students actually slept inside because they weren't comfortable sleeping out in the tent. But that was okay. Because the point wasn't to reach these grand goals. It was to be together, to have some fun, to share the fresh air, you know, and and provide an opportunity that they may not have otherwise had. And my hopes in doing that was that they would carry that curiosity and that energy forward to maybe pursue some of that in their own life, however they would see that. Maybe those people now, because we're already talking 15 years removed, and I'm dating myself again, but I wonder (laughs) what they're up to now. Did that experience or those experiences shape them. And as a researcher, I'm really interested in that. And I'd love to hear from them because it wasn't about me. And I think when I started out, it was about me and what I thought we could do and we should do. But it actually ended up being, hey, no, it's it's about what do the students want? So that's also really important to keep in mind. Thank you for, for sharing your experience with that. I think oftentimes even in my own understanding with outdoor ed, not not being an outdoor education teacher, we construct the outdoors as like there, not not here. We construct it as kind of like outside of our place and, and we go out and then we come back. And I think uh, you kind of reframe this for us, this this importance of the the here and now and, and the long term for students, thinking about how can we get these young people to take an interest in ways that make sense for them in the outdoors that is accessible to them, which is like right outside their front door or, you know, in the schoolyard. Uh, so I think that's really, really powerful. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience. I do want to note you you said something really profound. It, it wasn't all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. And I, and I think sometimes we oversimplify and, and we make things seem simpler than they are. But I'm interested in hearing about, you know, what were some of those early challenges or resistances that you had to persevere through in your practice bringing those young people outside? I distinctly remember one of the first few times that I took my, I'm going to go back to my English example, I took the class outside to read. We did it in a spot right where there were windows in the school and another class was in there and they were looking out the window at us. And we didn't really notice. I'm actually really proud of my students. They weren't super distracted by that. But the students inside were very distracted by us outside. And they started asking their teacher, you know, why can't we do that? And those teachers weren't comfortable with that. Um, They either didn't want to, they didn't know how, they didn't realize the benefits. You know, there's a whole list of things of why that class wasn't outside. And I'm sure they're all great reasons. I'm not saying they weren't. But that's one of the big resistances that I came across was other teachers then frowning upon me and my practice saying, well, you're just wasting time or... Um, and it, I think it was a bit of a defense mechanism, pointing the finger, saying, you're not, you're not, a, you know, um, achieving outcomes by sitting outside doing these things. And so, you know, I, I, I look back now and I was such a new teacher there. I think I was a little bit afraid to speak up. But if I could go back and do it all over, I would have made much more of an effort 
to advocate for that and show some of the research and inform and educate my colleagues and then also share like this is how we can do it or this is how you could try it but I was such a fresh teacher I was a little bit afraid I think I was intimidated and I started to question well maybe I shouldn't be doing this maybe they're right like they've been teaching for 18 years maybe they do know and like I mentioned if I could go back now I would I would maybe stand up for myself a little more and what we were doing that's not to say everybody frowned on it. I, it did catch on in some ways. A few people really took to it and really tried hard to embrace the outdoors as well in whatever they were doing. So that was really cool. But we certainly weren't on the, all on the same page at that school, and that's fine. I'm not assuming that every school is or can be even. Differences in opinion are okay, but I would have opened the dialogue if I think I, if I had been a more experienced teacher and further along in my career. Another challenge I had was with a few individual students. Um, like I mentioned, it wasn't all, you know, all great and warm and fuzzy because a few students really did struggle with the, the idea of extra freedom. So there were a few students who I had to create sort of special boundaries for. We would sit down together and do that. And I'd say, look, I realized yesterday you probably noticed you weren't really on task. I want you to tell me about that. Like, what was that about? And I said to them, if you want me to trust you, I've got to be able to look over and see that you're actually doing the task that we've all agreed we're doing. And when I see you not doing that, it makes me not want to give you this privilege of being outside. So how can we work together to make sure that we're all on the same page? And I said, as a result, you know, for the next few days, I want you to sit on the bench with me instead of going to your special spot because we need to build that trust again. And that's just one example, like I had to work through with a few students because it, they were just at a different place and they weren't quite there yet. And we got there eventually, I'm really happy to say, but it took a lot of work and it was frustrating in the background, although I would never have said that to them. I was very frustrated. There were definitely some challenges and some bumps, but you can probably relate as a listener that you can probably picture particular people in your class who might end up being those people you have a special bench conversation with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that speaks to, you know, our, our practices always being stretched by the ways in which students are are so different from one another and, you know, maybe take a little bit more time to, to come into that place uh, where we hope that they will come into. So you spoke about, um, you know, some of some of that tension, some of that resistance. I think that reminds us that Although we have our classrooms, you know, those classrooms are situated in a broader school culture and there are some challenges around that. But like you said, you, you know, maybe wish that you had entered into dialogue around that a little bit more. So now that's kind of your, your role as a, as a researcher and a teacher in the post-secondary level is really engaging in those dialogues about the importance of being in the outdoors. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what are these benefits? What is the secret sauce? How can we take up that practice in our own individual contexts, whatever that looks like, so that we can create this change, not just in our classrooms, but in our broader school communities? Yeah, the secret sauce, or the other way we frame it, the magic bullet. <laughs> there really isn't one solution, but research has shown that if we're looking at a number, everyone always wants to know a number, like how much time should I spend outside? And they've kind of found the sweet spot to be about 20 minutes. And you think 20 minutes, like that's nothing. Or you might be thinking 20 minutes. I can't imagine 20 minutes outside with my class. But 20 minutes is sort of the sweet spot where they found that before that amount of time, you're not quite reaching the peak potential or the benefits aren't really reaching their fullest. And right around the 20 minute mark is where our stress levels finally start to subside and we're relaxing and we start to whatever the point is, maybe we're there to meditate, we really start to focus, for example. And then it sort of plateaus. So 30 minutes, yeah, that's great. And 50 minutes, oh, that's really great too. But the peak and the actual sweet spot is right around 20 minutes. And I find that really interesting because recess, for example, is often 15 minutes. Or, you know, you hear about these people who say, I'm going to go outside for two hours. That's great. I'm not saying don't do it. But is there something else you could be doing that would be more effective if the sweet spot is sort of like 20 or 30 minutes, let's call it. So I think about that a lot, even in my own day when I'm taking breaks, 10 minutes might not be enough. 40 minutes might just be too much. And now maybe I am really just wasting time. I don't know. I've yet to really find that in my own practice, but 20 minutes is what the research tells us. 
And so if we think about that in our schools, 20 minutes could be a nice little chunk of a lesson or 20 minutes could be a nice little walk around the community. I'm not saying that with a bunch of grade one students, you should right away jump to 20 minutes. Again, we would scaffold that. But if, if you're aiming for something, let's go for that gold star of 20 minutes. And the benefits, they're not even just one-fold, two-fold, three-fold. There's a whole bunch of benefits, but I'll touch on a few of them so that you might, as a teacher, have some tools or some, some language around advocating for this. I've already talked about, you know, the unstructured play in my own life, but there is some value in just going outside and playing that, as you've already mentioned too, Jamie, like the social aspect, problem solving, people learn boundaries. I mean, children sort of have this innate sense of their own personal boundaries when it comes to physical safety anyway, but it really helps them practice that. Playgrounds are a great example, but how else can we allow our students some time and space to figure out their boundaries? So of course, unstructured play is, is a great benefit. Exercise, I mean, we could go into a whole other podcast series about exercise, but just running around sometimes is what children need. Um, and that physical activity piece. But beyond that, we're also looking at stress management. We, more than ever, of course, right now, are on screens a lot. And how can we peel ourselves away to, to figure out some strategies to have this sustained sense of well-being? So stress management is a big piece of the outdoors because there, it's actually been proven that the outdoor environment or the natural environment lowers our stress levels more efficiently and effectively than any built environment. So if you're going to take a coffee break from your desk, or if you're going to take a break with your students from whatever it is you're working hard on in class, you know, being in that built environment isn't the most effective way to take that break. And so how can we maybe step outside for a few minutes to take that break? Because it will more efficiently bring our stress levels down and the science has proven that. So I leave that question to you, and especially when it's minus 30 or 40, <laughs> I've suggested just stick your head out the door, take about 10 deep breaths, and then come back in. Like that actually is more beneficial than sitting in your class, looking at the walls or whatever you know that built environment is. Another benefit is around technology. I've already mentioned screen time, but the most prevalent technology addiction age is under 30. That's been proven, and that's not surprising to me, I'll be honest. I think that comes with a little bit of like, you know, you were born into technology and that's all you've ever known at that age. But, you know, technology leads to less social interaction, which we know leads to anxiety and, you know, around acceptance with peers and friendships and just knowing how to behave in certain settings, all those things just snowballs. So if we can show students and our colleagues and ourselves that taking away technology for a little while even if it's just 20 minutes or whatever it might be, we can learn so many great skills and lower our stress levels and, you know, get some exercise, all these things, for example, if we just get outside. So I think the outdoors can provide a great alternative to screen time. I'm thinking of my own children who are constantly asking to watch TV. We can find some really cool things to do outside, which hopefully might even be more exciting than watching TV. So that's a challenge. I get it. Like I'm looking, I'm thinking about teenagers, like that might be a hard sell, but start small. And what can you do outside to help peel them away from the screens, which we know have a lot of detrimental effects. I don't want you to think I don't love technology because I think there are so many great advantages too. So I don't want you to get that idea. But I think too, Jamie, if I'm speaking of benefits and I'm speaking of science, a few of the things, too, without getting into too much detail, that we know about fatigue and getting tired throughout the day that, that nature can help with is that thing called executive functioning. I don't know if you've ever heard of executive functioning, but it's basically the, the capability that we have that is necessary to lead an organized life. That's actually the definition of an executive functioning, but everybody has it. But it gets tired. It gets really tired. It's prone to fatigue. And what we need to make sure we do is rest that. And if we don't, you might see it manifest in people differently, but it's such things as like acting out, uh, lashing out, not focusing, um, needing like instant gratification. Those are the types of things that happen when our executive functioning is tired. 
we're not able to plan, we're not able to execute a plan, we can't think things through, we get really fragile. You might know people like this, you might yourself be like this. So if you have a student in your class who you're noticing is just like really irritable, it might not be that they're a bad person. In fact, we know they're not. We know now as teachers, like it's not about the behavior. That's just a symptom of something. So try just going outside with that student and see what happens because we'll know the stress levels will come down. There's this thing called soft fascination when we're outside where it doesn't take a lot of effort to focus on the trees and the grass and we just have this sense of relaxation. So even just simply going outside with no task could be the magic, could be the secret sauce. But what can, how can we do that with our students and thinking about that in our own practice, knowing that it doesn't have to be something really elaborate. I think that that's fantastic. And you touch on um, so many important benefits and, and so many important parts of like the experience of being a teacher. And I think, you know, sometimes when you speak about executive functioning, I think sometimes within teaching, I mean, I was a junior high, senior high teacher, and you taught high school as well. Like we often attribute some of those behaviors to being a teenager or to being an age specific thing. But really what we need to reframe is that, you know, it's it's about executive functioning and we experience that as well as adults. And from my understanding, you know, our frontal lobe is still developing well until well into our 30s. So even, you know, some of our listeners will recognize that executive functioning piece within themselves. It is important to all of us and important to develop and the outdoors as a space to support with that executive functioning, I think is so important. How do these benefits extend to teachers then going outside as part of their practice or as part of their self-care? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so easy for me to speak about it, but it, it's a whole other thing to put into practice. And I'm, I'm by no means perfect at it either. And I work on it daily, but I think of course, you know, we all, we know the benefits now about stress and time management and being more productive. You know, it's not a waste of time to go outside for a break. You'll actually be more productive after the fact. But I think sometimes the key is, is finding your motivation to go outside. And what is it that you like to do outside? especially in the middle of the school day, right? Like you've got your work clothes on and you don't necessarily want to chuck a toque on your head. You don't want to wreck your hair, whatever it might be. What is it that you could do outside that will check a lot of the boxes? You know, it'll make you feel better. It'll motivate you. You'll feel a sense of accomplishment. Maybe think hard about that for yourself. What is it about the outside that I love and that I can do? And for some people that's exercise. For some people it's the opposite. No, I need to sit and I want to like meditate or think or reflect. For some people, it's kind of the in-between and they might go for like a nice walk. For some people, it's play, like go with some friends and shoot a basketball around. For some people, it's take a book outside. That's your break. But whatever it is, it has to be appealing to you or you won't do it. I think we know that if it's not appealing and it's not something you like, you won't continue with it. So start off doing something that is appealing to you take your grading or your marking outside if you're just feeling this overwhelming need to be productive and then slowly pair that back you know okay half this time I'm going to mark and half this time I'm just going to sit and reflect I promise you you'll eventually realize and feel the benefits to the point where that alone can be your motivation for going outside just being outside and knowing how good it feels when you return back to whatever it is you're doing that alone will become your motivation and so the benefit in that, to your question, Jamie, like how do we as teachers benefit, is you will feel it. You'll know when you start practicing this and doing it daily or whatever it needs to be for you, you'll feel it and you'll know. And so the benefit will, will emerge for you, whether it's de-stressing, whether it's finding more energy, whether it's just taking a moment for yourself because you need that self-care or you need that alone time or you need that social time, whatever it is it will emerge for you if you just try it and practice. I love that advice. Start with something you want to do. And that's a great opportunity to build habits being outside and shift those habits as well. So I, I know you spoke about some of the common barriers when it comes to taking students outside some of those barriers being, you know, pressure about curriculum, the time that it takes to transition, especially with younger students from the indoor to the outdoor perhaps a lack of gear for the different weather. 
or even just like school board policies around, you know, whether you're allowed to do walking field trips or not, or what that looks like. I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to some of the tips that you have to overcoming those barriers or what you've learned over your years of experience to help start to tackle and break down some of those barriers that prevent teachers from taking their students outside. Yeah, I think one of the biggest tips I have is first get comfortable with it yourself. So if you're not an outdoor person, which is fine, it doesn't mean you can't go outside and do these things outside. But first practice it yourself, get yourself comfortable, figure out, you know, where's your what's your temperature threshold, for example, I don't mind the cold, but I also have the gear. So if you're a type of person who really does not like the cold, figure out what your what's your temperature threshold for you just you at home. Um, Maybe it's zero. Maybe it's five above. Maybe maybe it's more like minus 10. Figure that out first. Get comfortable yourself because once you're comfortable with it, then you can now facilitate this for others, right? We, We know that that saying where you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself. So the same is true for going outside. If you're not comfortable being outside, you're not going to be able to help others be comfortable because they'll pick up on it that, hey, like my teacher is super uncomfortable with this. So first get yourself comfortable. And then the other piece to that is start working on getting your administrators or your colleagues on board. Take some time to talk about it. Take some time to explain your reasoning. Maybe you need to do a little research yourself, find some information that you want to share to advocate for it. So get them on board, because if you have people supporting you and going, yeah, great idea, it makes things a heck of a lot easier. So those would be my first two pieces of advice is get comfortable yourself and then start kind of building a support network, whatever that looks like. And then if it's a safety thing that people are concerned about and the resistance you're you're hearing about or feeling is start small. I said that from the beginning, but start small for that reason. Say, look, you know, we're not going outside and going for a swim in the river. (laughs) We're going outside to sit in the grass and we all are going to have our backs to the physical building of the school so that we're not far so that I could monitor and like check off all those boxes for those people who are concerned. So set some boundaries both for your students sake, but also for those, you know, parents or guardians or administrators who might be worried. And I think that as people see, Oh, that's actually working or Hey, they're actually loving this. And there's a bit of buzz around it then you can kind of branch out. That's when you can start to take more risks, maybe push some boundaries a little bit. You know, if the weather's too cold one day, that's fine. Nobody's going to fault you for saying, look, this isn't going to work because you can't force a student to have great deep reflections as they're writing in their journal when their fingers are frozen or their pen's not working. (laughs) There is a boundary and a point where it's okay to say this is not going to work. So figure those out. Start small. And again, it's so important to inform administrators inform and educate parents and families so that they know why you're doing what you're doing because from as an outsider looking in if you're if you've never been outside as a family and you see your young child going off to school and running around outside all day you might question that but if I know that the teachers communicated the reasons why and what we're doing I'd feel a lot better about that as a parent or guardian so yeah you're going to come up to barriers obstacles challenges I mean we live in Canada We've got cold weather. That's one of them. But there are many more. So if you can try to be proactive thinking about those, that's going to be your biggest success, I think. I think it's it's so important that you touch on the relationship between parents and administrators. You know, our schools are situated within communities. And so it's one of the challenges and opportunities to continue to build relationships. You talk about, you know, one of the issues is that people misinterpret what it means to be outside. I'm wondering if you can share with us what some of the other controversies are around this field of outdoor learning so that we can, you know, be better prepared to take that up in our practice. For sure, one of the biggest misconceptions is that you don't learn anything outside. If there's not a pen on paper, you're not learning anything. And that's something that's often deep-rooted in whether it's culture, tradition, or their own upbringing, or their own experience of school. So one of the greatest ways, I think, to overcome this, it's a bit more of a long-term thing, it's not going to happen overnight, is to document what you're doing outside with the students. Take videos and photos of what the students are doing outside and then make really clear connections to the curriculum so that these pieces can become part of a portfolio, for example. You can literally share those things back to the families with specific outcomes and indicators list right there. This is what we're doing. Have interviews with the students on a video, like a chat. What are you doing? What have you learned? 
What are you curious about? And I think once parents, guardians, and families hear their own child speaking too, they go, oh, okay. So they're kind of excited. You can hear it in your student's voice or you can see it. If we can really pinpoint where the learning is taking place, then you'll be able to gain more support and it will become less of a, you know, you defending yourself in your practice and more of a really fun journey together. So you might have to start off being very specific and almost painfully descriptive in what you're doing and prescriptive. But I think the end game and the end outcome will be that you can have more freedom then and you can show the learning and everyone will see that. And it's so evident. I really like your reframe as in, you know, inviting it to become a conversation rather than being kind of a thing that we have to be defensive about in terms of our practice, but rather inviting it to be a conversation with families through student voice. So as we start to kind of wrap up our conversation here, I am wondering if you might want to share with us, what is it about nature specifically that can help to facilitate learning? So not just being outside as a way to to help with our cognitive functioning and, and our executive functioning and reduce stress, but how can we facilitate learning through nature? What What is the magic of nature that kind of helps us with that? You know, Jamie, I think it brings us right back to something you said right at the beginning is that this isn't new. This has been around forever. Nature, learning from nature, learning on the land. Nature is our teacher. And I think the thing about it is that there's something for everyone outside. For the calm, observant learner, there's there's that opportunity. For the adrenaline junkie, you know, who likes speed and excitement, there's something for that learner. For the person who likes touching, like, well, who doesn't like feeling all weird kinds of things, like it's tactile, there's colors, there's animals, plants. You can literally learn about everything in and through nature. So I challenge you to look through your particular curriculum that you're teaching and find something that couldn't be done in and through nature. Nature is our original teacher. Awesome. So as we as we kind of think about taking this up in our own practice, I know you've given us the advice of start small, like start just taking people outside and then and then slowly scaffold as you build comfort for yourself in the outdoors as a teacher and and with your students. I'm wondering if you can give us a picture fast forward into days, weeks, months of us taking this up in our practice. What could success in this way look like for us down the road? Do you have any examples of other schools or teachers who have kind of reached this place in their practice where they have the comfort and they're engaging with the outdoors in creative ways? One school in particular here in Calgary Connect Charter Schools, they spend a lot of time outdoors. And one of the, I guess, it's a course elective that students can take is an urban expedition. And so not only do students learn about outdoor living skills, like, you know, sleeping in a tent and cooking outside and all those things, they learn about working in a group, meal planning. Okay, what about meal planning? There's nutrition. There's what do I pick to wear and pack? Then beyond all that, they're they're trekking through our city. Instead of the wilderness, they're in our city and they're learning to take transit and they're learning to like walk into, you know, the corner gas station and ask um, if that person has matches they can purchase. And then they're learning about money because they have, okay, well, what does that cost? And like all of these things rolled into this concept of an urban expedition. So think of these young students who have maybe never slept away from home and what that independence looks and feels like. And so this isn't something they just, first day they start doing this. Of course, this is a culminating activity with intentional teaching and experiences throughout the term, but that's a really cool example how you can learn anything and everything outside in nature, in and through nature, with the right motivation, of course, with the right teaching and building up of experiences, not starting, you know, in a big way. And it can be done with experiences that you maybe would have never thought. I honestly, before I heard the story, would have never thought of camping, you know, in a city park. Of course, there are permissions around that and whatnot. But once you've got all those things in place, how cool is that? That's really great. Learning about our own communities through experiencing them firsthand. And developing those lifelong skills, like you talked about as well. We want 
students throughout the lifetime to continue to engage with the outdoors. And what a better way to start than within your own community and, and developing those those really important practical skills. That's a that's a really great example. Thank you so much for sharing that. So as we as we kind of wrap up our conversation, I was wondering if you wouldn't, you know, mind sharing for our listeners if there are any go-to resources or readings that would be a great starting point for them as they situate their practice within this broader idea of or outdoor education or the outdoors as teacher and curriculum. I've got a lot of researchy ones I could share with you, but I'll save you that for now. There's some great websites out there. I have to admit, I was hesitant at first to think about websites as resources, but we've really come a long way. And so one of them that I follow is called Childhood by Nature, and it's literally childhoodbynature.com. And they have tons of resources. They have great conversations. They have events. Um, really anything you could think of. So I, I think you should you could start there. Uh, there's also a, a Canadian version or a Canadian website called TakeMeOutside.ca, and this actually started as an initiative to have students advocate to ask their teachers, "Hey, take me outside today," which is really neat when you think about it. So it's TakeMeOutside.ca. And there are tons of Facebook groups. I don't know if anyone here is on Facebook. I hear it's for the older generation. And so that that's me. There are tons of Facebook groups, nature resources, nature learning. You just you type that into the search and you'll come up with a ton. And I would say all of them have value. You'll find the one that's right for you and what you need and what you want. But those are three places I would start. I think that's fantastic too. Uh, the importance of communities of practice. I think, even though Facebook is is maybe more our our generation, it still serves as a platform for people to come together and share their experiences and develop those communities of practice, which is so important. Thank you very much for for this conversation today, Shannon. We really appreciate it, and uh, we hope that our listeners, if they're interested in following up with you, can reach out to you or connect with some of the research that you've done which I think is really important to to that ongoing professional learning and to shifting their practice to take up outdoor learning in a, in a different way. Absolutely. And I welcome any, I would say, face-to-face meetings, but we probably have to put those on hold. So emailing me is probably the best way. And my email address is skel at mtroyal.ca. And I love to talk about this. So you be careful what you wish for when you email me because we uh, we might go off on some tangents, but I do <laughs> welcome that. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me today. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Ever Active Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, And a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed. Dismissed.